Uh, I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and are enjoying the holiday weekend, but I uh, wanted you to know that today is also uh, an important day in the life of the church. Today, as I said with the children, is Christ the King Sunday, a day in which we acknowledge that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and to no other. This is actually one of the newest liturgical days in the church year. It was declared in 1925 by Pope Pius XI, claiming that Christ's kingship is not something gained by violence or by usurping another's power, but simply from his essence and his nature, Christ is king. And so Pius XI declared a feast day for Christ the King in 1925, and he did so to remind Christians that their ultimate allegiance was to their spiritual ruler in heaven, not any earthly power. This was, at the time, actually a very bold statement to make because he was saying it uh, just outside the bounds of then-Italian leader Benito Mussolini, who was at the same time claiming earthly supremacy. Christ, uh, as I said, today is Christ the King Sunday, uh, and it's actually the last day on the church calendar. So this is like the Christian New Year's Eve. Uh, the church year begins next week. Uh, the new church year, rather, begins next week with Advent. Uh, so the church year begins with Advent and it ends with Christ the King Sunday. But think about that a minute. Every year as a church, we celebrate the story of our faith. We begin with hope and anticipation for the coming of our Lord as a helpless baby in a far-off manger in Bethlehem. We move through Lent uh, and, and uh, Christ's death and resurrection, Pentecost and the birth of the church, and so on, but then we end the year with a reminder of Christ's lordship over all, and that one day his kingdom, which is already forming on earth, will be complete. Our first lesson was from the prophet Ezekiel, and this gave us one glimpse of Christ's reign. As God's shepherd sent to gather the lost sheep of all nations to feed them and tend to their needs. Our second reading is from the epistle to the Ephesians. And it describes how acknowledging Christ's rule is actually something that unites, brings together the church, and charges them to live and proclaim the gospel together. I invite you now to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the first chapter of Ephesians, beginning with the 15th verse. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. 
as a pastor, uh, and before being a pastor, I worked in uh, camp ministry as a, a camp counselor and, and uh, also uh, um, assistant director of a camp. In all these uh, fields that I worked, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of groups and learn a lot about how groups function. And what I learned in those of you who work with groups of people, you know that group dynamics can be a very sensitive thing. The dynamics of any particular group or community can change with the addition of new people or the absence of any of its members. Whenever one of these things happens, the group, the community, is no longer the same. Oftentimes, the community can adjust and adapt to these changing dynamics, but other times, these changes can be a struggle. In our lesson today, the epistle writer is addressing a church changing, uh, sorry, facing such community uh, change in dynamics. The church in Ephesus was originally composed of uh, part Jewish Christians uh, and then also Gentile converts. The epistle writer realizes that as more Gentiles join the church, the more they see their community change and the less inclined they were to do things as they had before in the synagogues. These changing dynamics were often met with resistance and conflict. After all, change is hard for everyone because with change comes the loss of stability and the feeling of control. All of these things were on the writer's mind as he addresses the church. In addition to these changing group dynamics was a conflict over allegiance. Ephesus, like much of the ancient world, was a Roman-occupied area, and people there were expected to bow to the emperor and claim ultimate allegiance to him. It seems to me that even though we are 2,000 or so years removed from this ancient church in Ephesus, these feelings are familiar ones to us in the church today. Far fewer of our friends, neighbors, and family members regularly attend church uh, today compared to just a couple decades ago. Fewer folks know the Bible and therefore have trouble relating to the transformational, life-giving message of the gospel. Because of this, our society, like the Ephesians, finds itself with numerous entities competing for our attention, but also for our allegiance. Our careers, our alma maters, our sports teams, even our political affiliations, among many, many others, are all competing for our allegiance and loyalty. And it leaves the church with this tension, with this uh, struggle to find its own identity. So how does he decide to address them given all these conditions? By reminding them of Christ's ultimate power and reign. He does this in good first century letter writing form. First he does something uh, pretty typical, and that's to thank God for their faith and commitment to the gospel. Then You know, he doesn't come right out and criticize them for not being united. Rather, he prays for them and asks them for God to instill in them the spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. Then he says, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is a hope that is shared by all who are in Christ. This hope can do extraordinary things, but it doesn't end here. He continues by invoking God to equip the Ephesians for ministry. According to the working of his great power, 
God has put this power to work through Christ, through his coming, his dying, his rising, even his ascending. And from this, God has given him a name that is above every name that is named. The true power and authority and reign of Jesus is present now and will be fully realized when he returns. The Ephesians here are reminded that whatever other loyalties they have, whatever pride they carry, all of these things one day will be no more. But Christ is the Lord of time and creation, and at the end, Christ will have the last word. To the Ephesians and to us today, this is an affirmation that to follow Christ means that our ultimate allegiance rests with him. Other things in this world will continually compete for this loyalty, and as humans, we will struggle with this. But Christ, the good shepherd, will continue to call us back to his flock. The world around us wants us to fight for our piece of the pie, to find and and grasp power and control, but the gospel of Christ, our King, calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and proclaim the rule of our Lord. This is ultimately the reason why we celebrate Christ's reign every year as the Christian church. We need this reminder of Christ's rule over our lives, of the church, of the world, of human history. It's a comfort that whatever uh, other things seem to be controlling your life, whether it's uh, worries about career or money or fear or addiction, all these things will one day be no more when Christ's reign is truly present. This doesn't mean that bad things will never happen to us. Rather, it means that God's presence in Christ is always with us. And when Christ's reign on earth is complete, there will be no more tears. Death and pain will finally be defeated. Friends, living into the reign of Christ means trusting God's spirit to lead us into the future. This reign is not something to fear or dread over because the one in control is Christ, who Ezekiel uh, looks forward to and prophesies towards calling the good shepherd. To live into Christ's reign and rule here and now means, as our lesson tells us, means to know and proclaim the hope to which he has called you. In other words, to live into Christ's reign, to claim allegiance to Christ as Lord alone, means, friends, that we are called to hope. Called to hope for God's tomorrow. Called to hope for a world without suffering, a world where bitter divisions have ceased where we can get along with our neighbors across the world and even around our own Thanksgiving dinner tables. In a world overwhelmed by injustice and oppression, suffering and hatred, Christ calls us to proclaim and embody this hope to the world around us. As a pastor, I find it fascinating that on Christ the King Sunday, our church year ends with the message of hope, of hope for Christ's eternal reign and rule over all creation. Next Sunday, we'll begin a brand new church year, and also the season of Advent. The theme of the first Sunday of Advent, you may remember, is hope. We light the candle of hope on the first Sunday of the church year as we begin the season of Advent, a season of holy waiting in preparation for our Lord's birth. The church's liturgical calendar seeks to tell our story every year. So from this angle, the church year begins and ends with hope. Hope for Christ's birth and Christ's return and rule over all. 
Hope then becomes the linchpin, the connector between the end of one year and the beginning of the next. In other words, this means that we as Christians are a people of hope. It's part of the Christian's DNA. Even in the worst of times, we remain steadfast in our hope for God's tomorrow, of the redemption of this broken world in Christ. In a world surrendered to fear, we are called to hope. We are also called to live into this hope today as we live into Christ's reign working to eliminate the suffering and hatred we see, working to bridge the divides in our society and world, working to seek our oneness together in Christ. Friends, as we end this Christian year, may we commit ourselves anew to the reign of Christ, our Lord and our King, acknowledging the competing idols in our lives and world. And may we know what is the hope to which we have been called by Christ, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.